can respond with thanks be to God. Um, So again, we're in Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came, and they took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so for those of you who are new, a warm welcome to you. My name is Steve, and we are continuing our series looking at the Gospel of Matthew, the life of Jesus. And uh, I'm looking forward to walking through this charming passage with you today, this <laughs> beheading of John at this birthday party. And as ugly as it is, one of the things I appreciate most about the scriptures is God gives voice to the harsh realities of our world. He wants us to know that he, that he knows that these kinds of things happen. And while there are a number of lessons we could, or while there are a number of lenses through which we could view this, this birthday party in this story, the, the main point is rejection. That is, if you embrace Jesus and really follow him, you will face some kind of exclusion or rejection. And I actually find this helpful because Jesus wants us to be thoughtful. He doesn't want us to be surprised when we follow him. And so what what Jesus says is, when you follow me, you will receive all kinds of gifts, beginning in the here and now, and then in the life to come. But there will also be many challenges to following me as your Lord. And one of those is there's a cost. Uh, Whether it's in, I mean, physical persecution like here, or probably more common in our culture, is some kind of social exclusion or ostracism. And so in that light, let's look, let's look at this story under these three headings. First, we'll look at the birthday party. Second, we'll look at the lesson of the birthday party. And then number three, how do we live in response to what we learn? So number one, the, the birthday party. Number two, the lesson of the birthday party. And then number three, how do we live in response? And as we move into this, just giving credit where credit's due, I'm indebted to an author and pastor named Josh Porter who did some great work on this passage, especially the first half of the sermon. I'm borrowing a lot from him, so just wanted to give him credit for that. Okay, so first, number one, the birthday party, starting at the top in verse one and two. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. So the scene cuts from Jesus. This is actually the only scene in Matthew that doesn't directly pertain to Jesus or have him in it. And if you're reading Matthew, it feels like a sucker punch because finally you realize that John the Baptist is dead. Throughout Matthew's gospel, we've seen that John the Baptist, he's a cousin of Jesus. He's the herald of Israel's long-awaited Messiah. 
Uh, he's a friend of Jesus. And the last time we see John in Matthew is he's in prison due to the same Herod of, in this passage, and he's doubting. He sends messages to Jesus saying, are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And now suddenly we find out he's dead. So you're wondering, well, what happened? And the story, so it's as if, you know, if you're watching a movie, it pans back in time and it shows you what happened to John. Verse 3 through 5. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. So Herod here, he is a part Jewish ruler. He was installed by Rome as a puppet governor to oversee Galilee, where John the Baptist is. And John the Baptist, he gets in trouble because he decides to move his preaching from the riverside to the steps of the capital. And he gets on Herod for having an affair with his brother's wife, Herodias, and then marrying her, which directly violates the Torah, which forbids adultery and incest. And so, so because what happened is, so Herod, he, he was married, he divorces his first wife, has an affair with his brother's wife here, marries her. And this act, it was so well known in the empire, in fact, that the father of Herod's first wife initiated border war with Herod. So everybody knows about it. Yet we have to ask, why does John the Baptist choose to pick on Herod? Because you often don't see figures in the New Testament, like speaking truth to political power. And historical records actually show us that Herod's aspirations for what he was doing was far greater than being a puppet governor of Galilee. He actually wanted to be king of all of Israel. And so John's point in coming at him isn't to necessarily bend politicians into biblical ethics, but his point is you're claiming to be the king of all Israel, and there's only one true king, that's Jesus. And so just everybody, look at his life. He can't be the one true king. And so as we see here, Herod puts him in prison. It's not just because he punctured, John punctured his ego, but it's because John is proving a threat to his aspirations for power. It makes sense so far. So now we get to the birthday party. And birthday parties were pagan celebrations in ancient culture. So I guess conservative Christian sub subculture, I guess that means back in with the Halloween costumes, out with the birthday cakes, okay? So in these pagan celebrations, you have men who would often get drunk and then hire prostitutes to perform erotic dances or worse. And this scene is even more depraved because the girl doing the dance at this party is his wife's daughter, who's believed to be only 12 or 13 years old at the time. Growing, wow, this sounds really gross. Yeah, and it, it's, a, it's par for the course for Herod's family tree, with, which is profoundly warped. So try to follow along as I go through this. Herod's father is the Herod, the same Herod from the Christmas story, who slaughters all the children trying to kill baby Jesus. So off to a bad start already. That Herod, Herod's father, he has 10 wives and he has 10 sons with these 10 wives, three of whom he murders. His sister Salome had a daughter, Bernice, who married one of Herod's 10 sons, who was also her cousin. They had a daughter named Herodias, who grows up to marry her uncle, Philip, with whom she has a daughter, the daughter in this story. She then has an affair, Herodias has an affair with her other uncle, the Herod in this story, to whom she offers her daughter for erotic dances at his birthday party. So Herod is married to his sister-in-law, who's also his niece. And then her daughter, who's his great-niece, is performing this dance. In other words, not a picture of righteousness, godliness. And it gets worse because Herod is so pleased by this dance that he offers this girl basically anything 
you know, in the kingdom. And so she goes to her mother, and her mother Herodias, she's bitter toward John because John has been impugning her in his preaching because she's the one involved with the affair. So she says, you know, I want John's head on a platter. So they behead John in prison and then take his head to, to the party and serve it right there. So in summary, you have a dancing girl, a dancing teenager, who was offered a gift by an aroused ruler who's also her uncle. And at a loss for what to do, she goes to her mother, who in a pure act of spite says, yes, this innocent man over here has been nothing but a faithful follower of Jesus. Behead him, bring his head to the party. And then what do we see in, in verse 12? And, and, Jesus, and John's disciples come, presumably in tears, and take the body and bury it. And they went and told Jesus. So at this point, we're probably feeling a little, just a little bad, okay, a little icky. And so as one speaker once did for me, I wanted to offer a palate cleanser for you guys. So look, here are two cows who have been shampooed and blow-dried. <laughs> I don't know why or how, but I like, I like what I see. I couldn't stop showing my family about it through the weekend. <laughs> okay, so... All right, so we good? Like, we're, we're okay to, to move forward. So the scriptures, they tell us these kinds of things because we need to see what happens when humans define good and evil for themselves, what the scriptures call sin. Okay, and how do we live in light of it? And, and how does the scripture give us, okay, thank you, you took it down. No one was going to be able to pay attention. Okay, so in light of this scene at the birthday party, what do we learn? What's the lesson? And when you zoom out a bit and look at context, the theme of this whole section is rejection. So go back to the story that we looked at last week, Jesus, in verses 53 through 58 of Matthew 13. Jesus is rejected by the people in his hometown. And what this signals is clouds are gathering on the horizon of Jesus' story. Because up till now, if you're reading Matthew's gospel, it's Jesus teaching to great crowds. He's healing the sick, casting out demons, calming storms, the thrill of the kingdom. And then suddenly, clouds begin to darken as Jesus is rejected by the very people who helped him grow up. And then now, the herald of Jesus, John the Baptist, is beheaded for doing nothing more than declaring who the rightful king is to a power and authority who won't, who won't welcome the kingdom due to resentment and lust and greed. And notice John is beheaded due to Herod and Herodias disobeying every command in the Sermon on the Mount. You have violation of the Torah, anger, lust, adultery, the, the making of rash oaths, retaliation, hating enemies, even pronouncing judgment in order, in fact, of the Sermon on the Mount. And so we're meant to ask, if this is what happens to the herald of the king, what will happen to the king himself? And then what will happen to the king's followers? And sure enough, as history shows us, Jesus himself is executed by the state and religious authorities. And followers of Jesus all throughout history have been persecuted and executed for doing nothing more than following Jesus. And so what's the lesson? The lesson, it's hard, but it's important. And it's that allegiance to Jesus will always be an affront to the powers that be. All the powers that be. So the powers may be political, they may be people or influential figures or authority figures in your own household. It may be your job culture. It may be the group think of your friend circle. It might be an entire generation. But when you go all in with Jesus, 
Okay? It will always be an affront to people who hold to ideologies of the world. And uh, recently I started, uh, there's a man named Russell Moore who recently wrote a book called Losing Our Religion. Okay, not our faith, but losing our religion, an altar call for evangelical America. And in the introduction of the book, he shares how he used to serve as the president for the public policy arm of a large American conservative denomination. And in 2016, he was asked to endorse the uh, 2016 Republican nominee for president. And he felt, just his personal conviction, looking at the teachings of Jesus, he couldn't give an unqualified, you know, using his platform, if you're a Christian, you must endorse this candidate kind of endorsement. And then around the same time, a number of sexual abuse scandals started to break out in churches in this denomination, and he publicly spoke, spoke out against it. And there was a specific circle of authority figures within this denomination who didn't like it because they felt like he was putting the spotlight on them. Until one day, one of them pulls him into a meeting and tells him, look, look, Russell, we can't kick you out because our wives are with you, our kids are with you. So what we're going to do is we're going to perform psychological warfare on you until you learn never to open your mouth. And what happened is, is Russell Moore, he made the same error that John the Baptist did. He dared to hold to an allegiance okay, that's higher than a political platform, okay, higher than even a denomination. And now, to be clear, the, the purpose of this is not to say, as a Christian, you should or shouldn't vote Republican. Okay, hear that? It's also... It's also not to bash a denomination. That's not Russell Moore. His, his point in this book is to, he loves the church. He's trying to help those who are confused and wounded by the church. I personally know many male and female leaders in this denomination who are many wonderful people. And this was a, this was a circle of authority figures with, within this institution. The point of sharing it is to, to drive him the point when you actually stand and you don't hide the fact that your allegiance is to Jesus and there's one true king Okay, you will be an affront to those who hold the ideologies of the world. So in a place like D.C., if you embrace Jesus' teachings of nonviolence and stand with the immigrant and the refugee and stand against misogyny and racism, okay, many on the left will clap you on the back and raise their glasses and you'll be an affront to, many on the, to those on the far right. And yet while holding allegiance to this same Jesus— you embrace his teachings of self-denial and submit to him as Lord. Okay, if you stand against violence toward all people, born and unborn, if you hold the exclusive claim that he has that he is the only way to God, if you step out of the herd mentality of those leaving the church and abandoning Jesus, if you embrace the sexual ethic of Jesus, of sex within marriage, and believe it to be not repressive but actually beautiful and liberating as if Jesus actually knew what he was talking about, Many of the very people okay, who raise their glasses will suddenly put those glasses down and call you naive or an enemy or worse. Because when you follow Jesus, okay, there will always be some kind of cost. So that's, that's the lesson here. So now in, in light of this, this fact, and it's meant to be a, a good challenge for all of us, okay, to be not unnecessarily offensive okay, with our tone, or being self-righteous, or making other people feel like they need Jesus more than us. But it's also a good challenge just to see, you know, are we living the, the whole kingdom of God that Jesus teaches? So now what are, what are some ways we can respond? Okay, how can we live in, in light of this lesson? Hopefully this is, hopefully this is um, 
challenging in a good way and, and encouraging in a lot of ways. So the first takeaway could be, number one, be careful not to confuse political power with kingdom power. Okay, so don't confuse political power with kingdom power. John the Baptist, he gets in trouble because of the ways of the kingdom bump up against the ways of human politics. It was, it was that way then, it's that way today. Because to a great degree, much of the message and the means of the kingdom of God is at odds with human politics. So now to be clear, human politics matters. It's when God calls us into relationship with him, he wants, he wants us to live out that relationship in every area of life. And politics defined one way could be the ordering of our lives together. And God certainly cares about the ordering of our lives together. So in that sense, politics really matters. However, it needs to be in its proper space. Okay, it needs to be relativized to the kingdom of God because maybe think about it this way. The, the kingdom of God and human politics operate through basically opposing means. So human politics operates primarily top-down. Okay, forcing change by coercing behavior. Whereas the kingdom of God, it's almost the exact opposite. It's not forcing behavior or threatening punishment, okay, if you do or don't do something. The kingdom of God is about the renewal of all things through extraordinary love, including enemy love. And politics, by definition, doesn't operate on the principle of— sorry, I think that's my child, so that's just kind of distracting— <laughs> on, uh, on, the, on, the principle of, on the principle of love for enemies— and so, in light of this, I think it's key for us as Christians to keep what's central, central, and what's peripheral, peripheral. Okay, because so much of the infighting that has taken place in churches, and you could say the recklessness that Christians have displayed in public, has come from taking what's peripheral, matters, okay, human politics, but elevating it to what's central, which is the kingdom of God. And in fact, this is, it's one of the best things you can do for people you're in relationship with. Because amid a, especially in a place like D.C., a culture of reactivity in every election cycle, it's like apocalyptic language that's used, you know, us versus them. When you keep, keep the kingdom central, okay, and relativize politics to its proper place, you become a non-reactive presence in the lives of people you love. Okay, you, you display the much-needed enemy love that's so badly needed and the stability that, that can only come from adhering to Jesus as your primary allegiance. Okay, so that's number one. Is we need to be careful not to confuse. Okay. I don't know if you guys are offended or get it, just taking this in, but hopefully we can talk about it more after if you want. Okay, so just don't confuse human politics for the kingdom of God. That's number one. Number two is be a presence of hope. Okay, and here's like the, the extra positive side of that coin. Be a, be a presence of hope. So one of uh, Kelsey and I's favorite book series, it's called Mistborn. And uh, Mistborn is a, it's a story, it's a, it's a, it takes place in a bleak setting. So all the colors are hues of brown and gray and black and ash falls from the sky. And they're under the tyranny of an oppressive ruler. And one of the main characters in the story, his name is Kelsier. And Kelsier, he leads a group that's trying to overthrow this oppressive ruler. And his wife, who's now deceased, she always carried a photo of a flower with her in her pocket. And she carried it because it was to serve as a memory of what the world used to be like before it became so dark. 
and it was to serve as to constantly give them hope of where they wanted to take the world again. And so uh, further on in the story, Kelsey, he is sending out his friends, and he can't go with them. And so uh, to one of his friends, he gives her, her name's Vin, actually the person who our daughter's named after, he, he, he gives her the photo of this flower, and he tells his friends, no matter what happens, always remember to smile. In other words, there's always reason to hope. And so we have to ask, you know, where the world is so often like this, okay, the, the oppression of, wi- of women, the abuse of power, innocent people getting murdered, okay, among many other things, what flower do we have? What hope do we have for ourselves and that we can offer to other people? And I love this because notice we're going to get into it more next week, but see what happens right after this horrific scene at the birthday party. Verse 13, right after, right after John is, is killed. Now when Jesus heard this, that is about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And then he moves on to feeding them with the loaves. So we, uh, Jesus is grieving Last time you've lost somebody really important, okay, you, know, you know the state that he's in. So he, he tries to go be by himself. And what I love is, is he's trying to weep. A crowd finds him. And so they're, they're swarming around him, and rather than get annoyed, he sees a people broken by this kind of leadership. And he has compassion on them, and he heals their sick, and he, and he feeds them bread. And this people, they're not just, this isn't just a matter of him feeding hungry people. This is a people who, when they're living in this kind of environment, they're asking the kinds of questions like, am I loved? And does God care? And Jesus steps in as the anti-Herod. Okay, look at Herod. Herod is driven by insecurity and lust and greed, leading him to take an approach where he takes, whether taking from women, whether it's killing an enemy who he doesn't like. Jesus is driven by other-centered love, and his assurance is God's Son, leading him to not take life, but to give life and to sustain it. And so he meets this crowd with his presence, healing their sick, feeding the hungry, and for us as well, okay, in our world where we often so, we just feel so either hopeless or cynical based on broken systems, or maybe it's church hurt for you, or it's just the personal crises and longings and fears you have in your life. And you're also asking, am I loved? And does God care? And Jesus, in his incarnation, in his life, and then in full blazing glory at the cross, says, you are, and I do. And you see, if if Herod disobeyed every command on the Sermon on the Mount to kill John, Jesus obeys every command on the Sermon on on the Mount to bring you into his family. Hey, rather than holding a grudge, he initiates reconciliation with you. Rather than lust, he upholds your dignity as an image bearer. Rather than retaliating, due to all the many Herod tendencies we have where we love to take from other people, okay, he reconciles you, bring you into his kingdom. He loves his enemies so that he can make you a child of the Most High. And then in his resurrection, it's as if he takes the spin of the world and reverses it. So now it's on a trajectory to where we will no longer need human government when he renews all things, because the entire earth will be filled with the tangible presence of God. And so what do we do in light of this? We don't wring our hands. 
we don't take the Western 21st century approach of trying to get moral high ground by claiming victimhood status as Christians because everybody just doesn't like what we believe. Instead, like Jesus, we bear witness to a better king, a better kingdom. We display the flower, as it were. And there's an American theologian. He has this, uh, he has this quote. I love it. He says, if you could bring it up on the screen. He says, the early church didn't say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. Don't you love that? And when you read history, you'll see that while the early church was a conundrum for people to figure out, because on the one hand, they had this exclusive claim. In a, in a culture that said you should be able to worship whatever God you want, they said, no, there's only one God. And people didn't like that. They were an affront to the powers that be. On the, on the other hand, they had the most inclusive lives possible. They did more for the poor than the pagan world. They did more to elevate women than the pagan world or history had ever seen. They did more to bring the races together primarily through hospitality. And just rather than ringing there and getting caught up in the reactivity of everything that's going on, just saying, okay, yes, we're not going to pretend this isn't happening, but more importantly, look who's come into the world. And so I, I think about for us, if you're in politics, great. We need Christians in politics. At the same time, okay, it can be so tempting when something happens to post something on social media makes you feel good. People in your in-group, they like it. And not to say you should never post things on social media, but I think something that, that's far more effective is to actually have people that you normally wouldn't over to your home to share your dinner table. Because, you know, you may, you may not be able to answer everybody's questions about why do you believe this about that? Why do you believe this about that? But you can say, hey, I can make tacos. Okay, anyone can, can make a taco and just love them and, and give them a presence, just as Jesus did. So in an environment that can't even listen to the other side, that divides the world between good people and evil people, where there's very little room for nuance, we as Jesus' disciples in his steps can lead not with reactive fear, but proactive love. Okay, not belligerent, not self-righteous, not hostile, but steady and assured. And that's enough. Because when you do something as simple but difficult and powerful as responding with kindness to somebody who wrongs you, be it in your house or in your job or at happy hour, when you actually listen to someone who has a different opinion than you, when you invite somebody over to share your dinner table who you never would if Jesus was still dead, you're remembering to smile. Okay, you're displaying the flower, bearing witness to a better king, a better kingdom. You're being a presence of hope. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for giving us real concrete hope uh, through which we can live by. Uh, Father, I pray that you will help us in the, I pray that you will help us to be like Jesus uh, in the same way that he was so patient us so tender and welcoming. And at the same time, people did know what he was about. And he was willing to experience offense uh, in orders that many people could come into your family. I thank you for loving us when we were enemies of you. Help us to remember that, uh, especially when we are with people who wrong us in some kind of way and it's just really hard to love them. Help us to be a people who are a presence of hope 
in our homes, in our neighborhood, and all around us. Help us to do this by the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.